Katharine makes a welcome return after some years. I'll introduce her briefly. Um, on the occasion of the publication of Frank Morehouse, A Life by Catherine Lumley. Uh, Frank spoke here once, I think, on one occasion, um, and um, the book is just out. So Catherine Lumley is, is a professor of media at the University of Sydney, where she was the founding chair of the Media and Communications Department. Prior to entering academia, she worked for two decades as a print and TV journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC, and The Bulletin, and she's written and co-authored Ten books, including Bad Girls and Gotcha. I think you spoke here on Gotcha, um, and numerous book chapters and journal articles, and has appeared on occasions at the Sydney Institute. And tonight, on the occasion of this, the launch of, well, the, the a Sydney launch of Frank Morehouse Life, and the talk, the politics of Frank Morehouse. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jared, and I want to thank Jared and Anne, as I always do, for their very gracious invitation to speak here. I love the Sydney Institute. I'm a great supporter, and I think it does important work in bringing together, you know, intelligent, educated people who want to discuss ideas from all sides of politics, and I applaud that. Um, I also, we'll just start by saying a little bit about Frank Morehouse, um, for those of you who are not familiar with his work. Um, Frank was prolific throughout his lifetime, and he died uh, last year at the age of 83, sadly. Uh, he was born in Nowra, the south coast of New South Wales, and uh, he came to Sydney at the age of 17 as a cadet on the Daily Telegraph. Um, he wrote 18... Um, works of fiction and non-fiction, so it was incredibly pro prolific in that time. I always thought that he lived about 23 lives in one when I was writing the book, and the book took me 10 years of research to write. There's a vast archive at the Freya Library in Queensland, and um, I think there's something like 165 boxes there, and I can tell you Frank kept everything. I mean, old aeroplane menus from the 1970s, but also um, a copy of every significant letter he ever received, and uh, 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 so every significant letter he ever received, and a copy of every significant letter he ever wrote. And I won't go into it in this talk, because I'm going to talk about his politics, but one of the things I comment on in an afterward to the biography is the decisions that I had to make as a biographer because Frank was a bisexual man who was having relationships with men throughout his life and at times when they were illegal, they were criminal. And um, there's a lot of material, to say the least, in that archive that um, people alive, people who are still alive and their families, if they, if they are deceased, would be surprised by. So I um, committed the journalistic crime of not putting everything in um, I was judicious. I, I, my policy is do no harm. But there are other biographies coming out. Um, Matthew Lamb's publishing two volumes and I'm looking forward to reading them. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what approach Matthew has taken to what I re regard as very sensitive material. So to the, to the subject of this talk, Frank's politics. And I will explain why I was very drawn to his work because of his politics, one of the reasons. Now, 
Uh, it's obvious that we are living through an extremely heated debate about the alleged rights and wrongs of parties to the current Middle East conflict. It is a debate that all too often lacks nuance, empathy, and at, any time, and, and at sometimes any grasp of history. I don't plan to use this talk to offer my own inadequate views on Israel or Palestine, Netanyahu or Hamas. But I do want to use the current viscerally ideological debates as a seg to talking about what originally drew me to Frank's work and why I decided to spend 10 years of my life researching a biography of him. As an academic, as well as a writer, I have spent a lot of time on university campuses. From my early 20s, when I was an arts law student at the University of Sydney, where I, I, I now reside as a professor, I have been fascinated by the way political factions operate in student and academic politics, and what issues become ideological shibboleths. I've always been naturally left-leaning, but equally suspicious, sceptical of hardline reactionary politics. To put it bluntly, I'm not someone who buys the t-shirt and wears the badge. At the moment, university campuses are awash with pro-Palestinian rallies. I personally supported a Jewish student one evening, not long after Hamas committed atrocities in southern Israel. I found her sobbing in a corridor. She told me she felt unsafe on campus. She was still grieving the events and had had to walk through a rally calling for the State of Israel to be abolished. Or more graphically, to see it washed from the river to the sea. The sensitivities on both sides, well the many sides, of the conflict are both ancient and not amenable, in my view, to black and white thinking. But that, in my experience, is exactly what is happening on our campuses and more broadly in some contemporary debates. So how does this relate to Frank Morehouse? Well, to backtrack a little, I first read Frank when I was a teenager in Newcastle, living in a working class beachside town. My parents had his early works on their shelves and being a curious teenager, I began reading them along with the joy of sex. Oh dear, nude hippies with excess body hair. I have no idea why I ever, th I ever thought sex was a good idea after that experience. I loved Morehouse's writing because it gave me a, a glimpse of a sophisticated cosmopolitan world, a bohemian world, a place that I thought I belonged at 14. As a scrawny brunette who spent her time writing derivative poetry, I was something of a misfit in Newcastle. I used to joke with my friends that when I grew up, I wanted to be Frank Morehouse. Instead, I wrote a book about him. I met Frank years later in the mid-90s when I was living in New York, and we were both invited to, to an improbably titled talk fest in Washington, the Festival of Australian Ideas. We joked together about whether we would discuss the invention of the esky or the hill's hoist on our panels. I asked him to describe his politics over dinner. To my delight, he said, I'm a left-leaning, democratic, liberal anarchist. Hashtag me too. Despite being socially and culturally anchored on the left, Morehouse had friends across the political spectrum throughout his life 
including conservatives such as Owen Harries and Christopher Pearson. His scepticism about ideological positions that are animated by a sense of self-righteousness, what we now call virtue signalling, has its roots in his formative years as a member of the Sydney Push. Now, many of you may know this history, but the, for those of you who don't, the Push was a loose alliance of intellectuals, writers, artists, and self-styled bohemians who drank together and debated ideas at Sydney pubs, such as the Newcastle and the Royal George. And it had its origins in the Free Thought Society, which was founded by University of Sydney professor of philosophy, John Anderson. It was not a formal political movement. <clears throat> the only qualifications to, to join or be part of it were a commitment to free thinking, a willingness to debate social norms, and a high tolerance for beer and casual sex. At the heart of the, the Push's libertarian philosophy was a disrespect for authority and core institutions that bordered on anarchy, as well as a belief that ideas should not simply be debated but lived. Now, the Push had a really big influence on Morehouse, who became part of it when he moved to Sydney from Nowra as a cadet journalist at the Daily Telegraph. And it was 17 years old. In a deeply conservative society in the late 1950s, the push offered a sensual as well as an intellectual education to a young man from country New South Wales embarking on a writing career. And one thing I should say is that by the age of 30, Frank quit his job as a journalist. He worked at the ABC after the Daily Telegraph to commit full time to writing, which is incredibly courageous in Australia. It's very hard to make a living as a writer. Um, and in her book on the push, Sex and Anarchy, Anne Coombs writes of the push, they were not like the Bloomsbury set. They were not self-consciously elegant or rich. They were not out to change the world, but to interpret it. They were tough in a laconic fashion, opposed to church, state, wowsers and censorship. Morehouse recalled his time in the push in his edited collection, Days of Wine and Rage, this way. We met and drank most nights at the Newcastle Hotel, the Royal George, later at the Vanity Fair. On some nights, we would eat together and perhaps go to someone's house for what was called a party. It's very quaint the way he writes this. We spent the time talking, or what Jim Baker, a libertarian philosophy lecturer, called critical drinking. Sometimes late in the night, we danced, danced rock and roll although there was some opposition because the music interfered with the conversation. The 1970s ushered in a very different era of political and intellectual activism. The traditional left's holistic revolutionary, revolutionary dream was fracturing and a host of new issues-based political movements were emerging. Women's liberation, gay liberation, racial equality, land rights and environmentalism. And People were being pulled into different camps. Morehouse was living in Balmain during this decade. Much of it was Sandra Levy, the acclaimed film and, and TV producer and feminist. She remembered to me when we were talking the Balmain years this way, as an exhilarating time with an extraordinary group of people. So many people came to Balmain. David Williamson, Don Anderson, the literary critic, Elizabeth Weinhausen, the journalist, Robert Adamson, the poet, Kate Jennings, the feminist, 
activist, and so many more artists and academics. Drawn to the constant intellectual, social, sexual, and emotional stimulation there. It was invigorating and a bit dangerous. Balmain was, at the time, still a deeply working-class suburb where young writers, filmmakers and artists could rent cheaply and gather <clears throat> to share their work at one of the 25 pubs. Balmain, it should be noted, is not a large suburb. 25 are a lot of pubs. When the chairperson of the Literature Board visited the regular Balmain readings of poetry and verse, she remarked, what they're spending on alcohol and drugs would publish a dozen books. Morehouse had published his first book, Futility and Other Animals, in 1969. In it, he writes openly about homosexual desire. Frank was bisexual, a cross-dresser and a writer who, drew openly on friends with, who openly drew friends and lovers with sometimes thin disguise into his fiction. And indeed, probably the writer that I, the Australian writer he most reminds me of in this sense is Helen Garner, who I I'm a big fan of as well. In the early part of his career, he was writing about sexuality with an honesty that put him in peril of being censored. Uh, and more than that, actually, um, you know, I, I, I was teaching a class in media law and ethics in first semester this year, and you should have seen the faces of these 23-year-olds in the lecture theatre when we were talking about how laws get changed, and I was explaining how how uh, homosexuality was once criminalised. They couldn't believe it. They really thought I was making that up. So, I mean, it, of course, um, being out as a gay or bisexual man meant that your career could be put in peril. There were a whole lot of risks you were taking. So I'm going to just uh, turn a little bit here and talk about censorship and Frank's involvement in that, because this brings me later to cancel culture, oh, so-called. Australia has a rich, enthusiastic and occasionally hilarious history of censorship. The banning of James Joyce's Ulysses in, 19, in 1929 ushered in an orgy of censorship. Orgy probably being one of the words that was banned. In 1930, the New South Wales Collector of Customs mandated that the department's censorship test was, quote, whether the average householder would accept the book in question as reading matter for his family. How many implicitly male heads of households had taken the time to vet Ulysses for their family remains a mystery. The fight against censorship in which Morehouse was very active was more than just a battle against parochial and paternal, paternalistic attitudes to sexuality. It was equally, equally a battle to allow a new generation of short story writers freedom to write in ways that broke with what writer Michael Wilding who was a peer and friend of Frank's in the 70s, called the single mythic line of the outback story. Writers of Morehouse's generation were breaking new ground by writing about what they saw around them. At the time, many of them were publishing in what we would now quaintly call girly magazines, including Playboy, Chance and Squire, because the reputable literary magazines would not print their work. Morehouse's opposition to censorship became a lifelong political fight. In a satirical essay, The Urge to Censor, written 30 years after the early censorship battles, he takes considered aim at the rationale underpinning pro-censorship rhetoric. He writes, It was as if we had been in a deep after-lunch sleep and had awoken 
not sometime in the future, but back in our more tumultuous past, back in the 70s, no less. It was not an agreeable sensation. We are not up to returning to the 70s. This disagreeable sense of deja vu was caused by the growing evidence of the dreaded urge to censor, the internet pa panic, the re-establishment of federal and state censorship, racial vilification acts. Now, I know that's contentious, but that's Frank's view. All show that the bitch is back on heat. Morehouse's views on censorship were strongly libertarian. In my biography, I write at some length about an unpublished erotic novella he wrote, which is, wait for this, the tale of a post-pubescent teenage boy who is inducted into intercourse by both his mother and a male teacher at his boarding school. It is certainly unpublishable today, I think. In a letter to his publisher in 2017, Morehouse outlined a defence of the right of writers to explore taboo matters in erotic fiction. He wrote, I feel that literature is evolving towards taking on the description of sexual behaviour with the same creative detail that writers might describe a cathedral, the landscape, falling in love, a wedding, the commission of a crime or the progress of a battle. The erotic is the most underdeveloped and inhibited literary genre in the English language, the unfinished business of English literature. Now, I won't go into my thoughts on his defence here. If you get a copy of the book, you can see that I have some issues with the defence, but you know, I think it's very important to see how strongly Frank opposed censorship. And I'm raising this here because I think his broader reflections shed light on the rise of what has, been known, what has become known as cancel culture. I discussed the latter on a number of occasions with Frank. Throughout his life, he erred on the side of countering offensive or wrong-headed speech with more speech, not with censoring it. He disliked to the point of contempt, self-righteous moral posturing, and questioned the motives of people on the left, to which he belonged, who were always looking, as he put it to me, for an oppressed group of people to proclaim themselves in furious agreement with. He he deplored the lack of nuance and the moral vanity he observed in some leftist politics and countered these tendencies with satire and irony. His sense of humour did not make him many friends on the hard left. An example of this is his response to a widely circulated feminist pa pamphlet in the early 70s written by the radical US feminist Anne Kurt titled The Myth of the Vaginal Orgasm female orgasms being a hot topic of political conversation in those days, apparently. In it, she argues that the, nature, the notion that all women orgasm as a result of penetration was a myth that ignored the fact that for most women, orgasms were related to clitoral stimulation. It says a lot about Matt Morehouse's appetite for frankness, um, or perhaps danger, that only two years after Kurt's essay, he, he wrote, a piece in the independent magazine Thor titled The Myth of the Male Orgasm. It's a very frank thing to do. <laughs> Still makes me laugh. Morehouse's reply was not, as his title might suggest, a flippant dismissal of feminist, in feminist interrogations of what sexual liberation might actually look like for women. Rather, it was a genuine reflection on the way male pleasure is an assumed rather than interrogated category in its own right. 
Morehouse was always supportive of the women's liberation movement, but like all movements, he was prepared to call out and satirise the tendency to self-righteousness and moral vanity. And he was always prepared to send himself and his social cohort up. I have a particular fondness for his comic essays. In late shows, he writes about the problem of the, quote, political litany at dinner parties. I'm quoting him here. A political litany is where the host of one of the dominant guests begins the evening with a curse against an enemy, usually a political enemy, not as an opening of discussion, but as an ignition of the other guests into some sort of passionate political bonding through the cursing of an assumed enemy. It is taken as inconceivable that anyone would dissent from the litany. We are all expected to curse the enemy. As it goes around the table, each guest is required to bring to the table a curse of the enemy or to bring bad news of the enemy. <laughs> Frank hated dinner parties. He preferred restaurants because he didn't like feeling he couldn't leave when he wanted to. Indeed, he had a fondness for good food and wine and what can only be described as an obsession with martinis. He imbues his most important protagonist, Edith Campbell Berry, with a similar interest in aesthetics and the good life. In grand days when Edith Campbell Berry boards the train to Geneva to work at the League of Nations, and just for context here, the League of Nations trilogy, Grand Days, Dark Palace and Cold Light, the third book is set in Canberra. Um, grand Days covers the rise of the League of Nations, uh, Dark Palace, covers the tragic fall of the League of Nations. So Edith, who's the protagonist, who I read is very akin to Frank, she comes from the south coast of New South Wales, she is self-consciously aware that her knowledge of the culinary arts and social arts may be lacking. She is, however, boarding this train to Geneva, well defended against embarrassment. She has practised her ways, ways that include going and dining. She makes her, careful, her way carefully down the train corridor to the dining car and has her first encounter with Ambrose, her future lover and mentor. She is wary of ordering the soup and tells her dining companion, it is not so much to do with the soup in the plate, plate I am told, but more to do with the soup in its spoon on the way to the mouth. That is where the difficulty lies. Further, I am told that it has to do with the unexpected stopping of the train. That's the incontestable danger point. It jerks. The train jerks. Like Edith, Morehouse has accumulated and designed rules for living well, including rules for avoiding the bears that lurk in the woods of excess. Rituals were always important in his life. Some of his friends joke about what they call the Morehouse method, when asked, and often when not asked, he was always happy to advise on the correct protocols for given situations. For when to order a martini, how it should be made, when to start festivities, and more importantly, when to cease them. Etiquette or the rules of engagement was a subject of endless fascination to him. He was not a rigid person. Rules interested Morehouse because he liked toying with their boundaries worrying rather than exceeding their limits. I see him as our man at the social cliff face, peering down with slight horror and intense fasc fascination at the rocks below.
Martini is the title of Morehouse's semi-fictional memoir, first published in 2005, in which he used the drink as a metaphor for life and friendships. There are people, and I have met them in the writing of my book, who find it strange that Morehouse would choose a cocktail as a lens to view his life. Some find it affected, others inexplicable. They are clearly not martini drinkers. <laughs> the martini appeals to Morehouse precisely because it is a drink poised between the poetic and the pedantic. It is on one hand merely a glass of spirits and a strong one at that. Yet it is also a drink that can only be appreciated in moderation when made well. It needs to be made in precise proportions, which are always in dispute, and served icy cold. It is a drink that should only be ordered in particular places and ordered with care. It is a toast to a life lived with attention to aesthetic detail and well-tempered pleasures. Now, an interest in aesthetics is often seen as suspect as superficial at best and corrupt at worst. On the left of politics, taking an overt interest in beauty, fashion or gastronomy has often been denigrated as being at odds with broader struggles for human equality. When Morehouse wrote about aesthetics, he often did so with an ironic and even self-mocking tone. His humorous stories and essays revolve around the anxieties and pretensions that shadow bourgeois aspirations and manners. But there was a deeper side to his fascination with the rules of refined living. Morehouse was very conscious of the way we invent and reinvent ourselves. Aesthetics he saw as a core part of persona, a pathway to trying on masks, a way of trying on new selves, of playing with alternate ways of being in the world. In his League of Nations trilogy, Morehouse takes his fasc fascination with the rules of civilised living to a global canvas. The League of Nations was, of course, a grand experiment in making rules for civilised global living. It was also tragically a grand scheme that collapsed under the weight of its own ambitions. The heroine of his League trilogy, Edith Campbell Berry, is Morehouse's most fully realised character, though interestingly one whose physical attributes remain sketchy. It is not until halfway through the first book, Grand Days, that we learn she has the vestiges of girlish freckles. We know less about her figure, her smile or the colour of her eyes than we do about her clothing or lingerie. Indeed, we get to know a lot about her lingerie. Frank had this habit of, of emailing or texting female friends and saying, is this an accurate description of a, a pair of knickers? <laughs> Which I found very amusing. Frank also told me once, I think it's in the book, that two-thirds of his wardrobe was female. He, he dressed en femme, as he put it, at home, not in the street. Mm. So interesting, he took a deep interest in women's clothing. <laughs> Good for him. Now this lacuna in relation to Edith, you know, the fact that we really don't, we can't really visualise her from the um, narr narrator's perspective, I believe allows the author to play more fully and promiscuously with her symbolic function in narrative terms, as well as allowing each reader the freedom to imagine their own Edith. 
One of her symbolic functions is as a cipher for the League of Nations itself. Edith, like, like the League, has embarked on an idealistic journey to become a citizen of the globe, one that involves her in uncertain reflections on the relevance of national identity in an increasingly international world. Her careful and constant internal testing of her comportment in meetings and social gatherings is an echo of the League's high-minded attention to the detail of international agreements, sometimes to the point of absurdity, and sadly, ultimately, to the point of futility. Asked why he chose the League as his subject matter, Morehouse said, I am writing about the League of Nations because it is a trunk in the attic of history which has not been properly opened. It contains haunted, bitter and embarrassing moments for the world, but it was also a human exper experiment of grandeur. Its stories deserve more space in our cultural imagination. The League embodies many of the themes that traverse Morehouse's work. The question of how many rules are necessary to maintain civility, how we might live respectfully with difference, the relationship between nationalism and internationalism, and the balance between private rights and public accountability. To read Morehouse's account of the League is to revisit a tragically failed experiment in global diplomacy and geopolitical peacekeeping. It is an experiment that haunts us, and perhaps never more so than today. Thank you. So many thanks to Catherine Lummy, and as I said, we have copies, I'm sure the author's happy to sign, of Frank, Mouth, uh, Frank Morehouse, A Life, and also Anne will be selling them online. And for those who are on the Zoom call tonight, um, you would have got an email earlier in the day saying how you can get in and make a comment or ask a question. Um, and so we come back. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a terrifically written book, and um, I was once asked by Dick Hall to have one of Frank Morehouse's lunches, and I think if, it, if he hadn't died, it, it might still be going, but uh, you mentioned martinis, but if you go through all your great photographs in the book, by the way, he, Frank seems to be mainly sitting around at lunch drinking wine or beer. <laughs> so how heavy a drinker was he? Um, and these days, would some of his work be regarded as just pornography? Well, I think some. I think his work, his um, writings about, you know, sexual material. His the sexual material in his work. I think um, these days would not be regarded as pornographic. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been online, on the internet, but <laughs> I think it's very tame. Um, oh yes. Well, that's interesting, Jared. Yes. So so in. Um, the late 60s, early 70s, Wendy Bacon, a range of people, um, but including Frank Morehouse, um, publishes. Well, this is part of their anti-censorship campaign. They sort of hijacked the UNSW student newspaper, Thurunka, and they turned it into Thor and Thorunka and various incarnations and um, distributed it. And they published, yeah, well, I guess, um, well, certainly cartoons and writings that at the time were regarded as obscene, but I think these days would be regarded as fairly tame. 
Um, and in terms of Frank's alcohol consumption, I think I covered that in the talk. I mean, yes, he loved he loved a drink, but he you know you can't produce 18 books and screen and on top of that screenplays. And he was a political activist. And you know, for copyright, I didn't even cover that. You can't do all of that if you're a complete drunk. No, he was not a complete drunk. <laughs> on the record, I'm saying. I can, yeah, I, and I'm I'm interested in uh, how debate and public life has changed since Frank was the great writer. Um, I'm thinking back on that trilogy on the uh, League of Nations. I'm thinking back to the Sydney Institute in the 90s where you could have a huge crowd listening to something on a person like Frank Morehouse or Frank Morehouse himself speaking. Um, he had a message and he had a talent for writing and a lot of it was fiction. But nowadays that doesn't grab people the same. I don't know what's changed. I mean, cancel culture is interesting in that it doesn't do what he was doing at the dinner party, sending up the dinner parties. Mm -hmm. But he was laughing and offering a, an alternative view to something that was dictatorial and whatever. But cancel culture is just simply we won't discuss it. We won't even allow mm. it. So how are things changed in the literary and the public affairs debate since Frank was doing. I mean, Frank yeah. had huge messages and huge insight into human nature and people would read and reflect on that and debate it. Now it's sort of very sharp, short, and if you're not liked, you're out. Well, that's what concerns me, I've got to say. I'm very concerned about this. I mean, I know cancel culture is probably a term that's leaked over from the right of politics, um, but that aside, as someone who is a left-leaning person, um, I've got huge problems with the idea that things shouldn't be discussed. I think everything should be up for discussion. I mean, I, I say this as a journalist, a writer, an academic, someone who feels that, um, that, that that's a kind of um, very militant and I think anti-intellectual position and it concerns me greatly. Um, that's why I've kind of I guess, crafted the talk this way because despite being of the, of the left, I'm concerned with where I see some identity politics going, to be honest. Just with the universities now, is there any possibility, of, I'm an old person, but young people being like intellectually engaged, like the push? And the other thing is, Josh Shep, Zepps, of course, and yep. you are the people who are hopefully fighting against the closing down of everything. Well, I mean, I, the, what I see that gives me enormous hope is teaching amazing young people on at Sydney University at the moment. That you know, that's where I'm working now. And um, I mean, it's interesting. And, and you know, my friend Janet Albrechtson's here, and it's like, you know, Janet and I've discussed this a lot. That that. You know, you, you get um, accusations that academics like me are sort of Marxists who are trying to brainwash everyone into becoming a Stalinist or something. It's absolutely ludicrous, you know. I mean, my whole view of education, we're about lighting a fire, not filling a pail. I don't aim to fill them with my views. I would like them to argue with my views, if anything. Um, so, you, so you get that sort of idea. But then on the other hand, on, on campus, you get from some elements of the hard left, um, a shutting down of debate. And my whole approach is when you walk through the lecture theatre over that threshold, we're in a space of doubt, not faith. All ideas are up for debate. 
you know, absent really awful hate speech or anything really, really offensive that's going to harm someone. But yeah, all ideas should be up for debate. That's the spirit of the university. I've got a question here from Zoom. It's from a woman in um, Wollongong, not far. The Gong. North, north of Nara, yeah. Um, and she's read your book. I think she says page 140, 146, she says. Um, there's a reference to Frank spending his last years in the Royal Automobile Club just around the road here. Uh, she yes. makes the point that, it, that it's in grave financial trouble. And she, the question is, did Frank pay his bills? <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> whoever whoever the, 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 that, that interlocutor is has a great sense of humour. Frank would love that question. Ooh, did Frank pay his bills? Well, there are plenty of stories. I mean, he did, but there are plenty of stories about Frank... Um, well, one of my close friends is the academic and writer Fiona Giles, who was Frank's lover on and off for over 13 years. You know, she has many stories about Frank um, living... What she said, he lived the good life for us while we were all being sensible. So, um, I mean, there's a really funny story about Frank being at the Groucho Club in London after he'd won some award and he won this prize money and he proceeded to take all these people out for lunch there and then all these other famous British writers started to join them and the champagne flowed and eventually he had to get on the phone somehow long distance to Rose Creswell, his long-suffering agent, and get her to, 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 to transfer money into his Amex account. So there are multiple stories of, of Frank being in that situation, yes. There's a question here. Thank you, Catherine, for reminding me of my early university days. I, I hit university when they were still marching on Vietnam um, and I had friends in Balmain in the 70s. Um, the League of Nations, of course, was a great idealistic idea that came to an end far too quickly. But as Frank started his career, the United Nations was coming up as version two, which was even grander in ideal. But maybe the... Um, the issues that you mentioned when you started your talk have shown the failures of the United Nations. What was Frank's view of that and what did he think we should be doing? Well, I've got to be honest and say we didn't discuss the UN except to discuss it in the context of how the United Nations basically sidelined the League of Nations. I mean, there were many people, really, you know, very intelligent people who devoted their life or a large part of their career to the League of Nations. And there's a sort of famous story of how... Um, they, they arrive in New York um, seeking to be heard um, on an important issue and they're not even given seats in the gallery. So, so there was this... Um, I mean, of course, this is all post-war and it's being influenced by those politics, but there was a view that the League of Nations was irrelevant and that's why he, he, he described it as trying to raise the Titanic. But he felt that it was really wrong that the United Nations had kind of not learnt from history, essentially. And, I mean, I think where he saw the sort of politics I was talking about before, I know what his view would have been on that. He, um, I, I think he worried that the United Nations was ineffectual and overly politicised at times. Janet? Thank you. Um, Catherine, you talked about the need for um, ideas to be tested in the university. 
I mean, it's beyond university, isn't it? And we, we see that all the time in uh, our national broadcaster, in our various other media outlets. We don't really see a, um, a vigorous debate about ideas and I mean I would love to uh, we, we basically need to clone someone like Frank Morehouse because there literally aren't enough people like him on the left who are able to laugh who mm. are able to not be offended by something to not have those kinds of dinner parties I mean to me it sounded like he'd lived in the eastern suburbs where I live <laughs> it's, it's pretty frightening out there <laughs> Um, and I don't know what, you know, whether he had any clues on how we actually turn it around. Because we can all identify the problems, you know, I spend my life identifying the problems, but it's really how do you turn this, 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 this thing around? Yeah, look, Janet, that's a fantastic question. I mean, I, I know that Frank would say, and I, I, I agree with this, that um, we need to learn to listen. You know, I mean, he's, in some of his comic essays, there's a whole section on the art of conversation. And why he cared about the art of conversation, on one hand you could say, oh, that's just sort of etiquette, but on, another, on the other hand, there's a deeper political weight to what he writes about. You don't gallop in, you don't argue, you don't speak to win. You know, th these, these are things that I think, and I know this is a sort of cliched thing to say, but it's an area of my research. Social media has a lot to answer for here. Um, that, talk about virtue signalling, you can just put one sort of meme up and suddenly you're a good person, tick, you know, and then everyone who agrees with you ticks it and likes it. I mean, that's not a debate. To me, we, the, I, I, what concerns me is um, the absence of nuance in discussions. I mean, I mentioned Israel and Palestine because that's the topic du jour, but I think on many, many issues, and I also think um, losing the art of having friends who disagree with you. I mean, you and I have been friends for a long time, we come from different kind of political ends of the well, not ends, but we, you know we, we, our politics are different. But then that for me is incredibly rewarding to discuss issues with you and and come away and think I'm looking at that differently now. You know that's that's to me is what is has to be at the heart of. I mean, we're not going to solve any conflict with shouting or arguing. You know, I mean, anyone who's been in a marriage. Knows that, right? <laughs> like you're ostensibly arguing about the dishwasher, but you're not. <laughs> you're arguing about <laughs> something else, right? So, I mean, the art of listening, and, and I guess the art of a bit of humility in terms of our own positions, not hardening into positions. That's certainly what Frank strongly advocated, and it's why the League of Nations fascinated him. Exactly what you're asking how do you bring people to the table? From your book, it appears that uh, Frank was certainly not a discreet person. In the last chapter, you talk a lot about, and you've mentioned a bit in your paper here today, you talk a lot about the problem you faced, whether all these papers and notes and correspondence and all this material that, that he collected and kept, which really intrudes on many people's private lives, because he had many, many lovers, male and female. <laughs> I, yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, you wonder if, if everyone lived like Frank, it would be quite a different world, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, is yeah. there a question in that? Yes, term? there is. <laughs> um, Give us a name. How do you make, how have you, you've said you've made that judgment, but was Frank discreet, indiscreet to leave all that stuff around or should he have got rid of some of it? 
Well, that was for Frank to do, and I'm, and it, you know, he left a challenge for his biographers. Um, and actually, just on the score of Frank's lovers, the talk about indiscreet or he, he, he claimed he didn't believe in privacy, though in practice there were some things he did want to keep private. Um, uh, but, but I once said to him, can I have a list of everywhere you lived from the age of 17? Because he also was forensic in keeping notes about things. And who you live, were living with. He sent me, and I've got it at home, I have not used it, about an eight-page sort of um, list of not only who he lived with, where he lived, but what kind of sex they were having. <laughs> I mean in detail. And I rang him back and went, Frank, I don't need that in my head, thank you very much. In fact, I was asked at a writers' festival some years back when Kerry O'Brien and I were on a panel and we were both asked... Uh, what qualified us to write the biography. Um, it, Kerry was writing on Keating and I'm writing on Frank. And Kerry gave a very serious Kerry O'Brien answer, as he would, right? And, um, and it came to me and I just said, well, I'm the only person in Australia who hasn't had sex with Frank. <laughs> so... Um, so this is a question that's come on Zoom and... Um, I'll give it a go. Someone wants to know, what side of the voice debate, debate would Frank have been on, do you think? Uh, that's not a bad question, actually. Apologies I, to our Zoom person. <laughs> I, well, one of the interesting things is, um, was uh, probably about eight years before he died, that um, Jennifer Jones, uh, apologies if I got that date wrong, but Jennifer Jones wrote a book called Country Women, um, and the colour bar, it was about the CWA, the Country Women's Association. And um, there's a chapter in it on a woman called Belle McLeod, who's a First Nations woman, who was Frank's nanny as a child uh, in Nara. And um, Frank was really interested in this. And he did express um, to me on in many of our later in interviews a deep regret that he hadn't better researched the First Nations history of the Nowra region. And Nowra's interesting, the last demographic stat I saw, it's about 90% Anglo and 10% Indigenous. So, oh, Aboriginal, and which is, you know, unusual. Um, and so he became very interested in that history. I suspect he would have voted yes. And I have a question actually from someone in Nowra, which is south of Wilkinson. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he says, tell us a bit, obviously he looked at your book, and says, tell us a bit about what he did at Nara, because he did journalism in Nara, didn't he? He did, he, before he went to Sydney, he um, did, you know, you've got photographs of some... Of the oh, he, 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 was, he was the editor of the student newspaper, and there's a lot of juvenilia in the archive. Um, so he was, he was, it's astonishing actually how early he decided to be a writer, and there's, there's um, juvenilia where he's writing about my purpose as a writer and how, how I want to become a writer and a journalist. Um, so he, I mean, he left school, you know, in those days he was, would have been 16, I think, when he left school. But there's this reference here to the Barara, is it B-O-O-R-O-W-A News, edited by Frank? What? Barara, North No, no. That's 1966, though. I don't know, you just caught me out. <laughs> Nicholas Pounder um, uh, 
sourced the photographs for me, the arch Frank's archivist, and I must thank him for that. Um, but he's, he had, he, after the Daily Telegraph, he had a stint um, on the Riverina Express and, you know, um, newspapers in country New South Wales. With all those lovers and all those strong opinions which he expressed in clever ways, do you have any personal disagreements worthy of uh, mentioning? I with, mean, with Frank. Well, that, yeah, Frank and others. I mean, were there any? Well, we just had Michael oh. Gawenda along talking about his whatever. Yeah, when he had, had a big falling out with Louise Adler. Yeah, of course. And, and, but but what about what about Frank with all his? Strong opinions, but oh, I see where you're and going. And many, yeah. many kinds of friends. Look, he did. I mean, I, I think um, the, the the ones that stand out in my mind were falling outs with lovers, and there were certainly some of them. Um, but one of the things I will say about Frank was, in the spirit of, I mean, he really always questioned himself and interrogated himself. It's one of the things I really admired about him. So. He, he wasn't someone who took a stand and took umbrage and had a self-righteous sense of I'm right and you're wrong. And so with some of his lovers, yes, they, it ended in tears, that's for sure. But then if you look um, towards his death, I mean, Sandra Levy, who um, was one of the most important relationships in his life, you know, they were, um, I mean, she was there in the hours before he died. Um, that was an incredibly enduring relationship for him. Um, Fiona Giles also was his was a you know long term partner of his. Um, so there were a number of those, and there were people I won't mention because they they weren't out as you know bisexual, um, and some of those relationships lasted for decades and decades. So actually, what I would say is, in summary, despite the usual spats that lovers lovers quarrels that people have. Um, People showed an incredible lo loyalty to Frank, and he did to them. But you deal, you do deal with um, tension between him and David Williamson. Uh, so you might background that. Sure. So, I mean, one of the things in Balmain in the seventies is you've, you know, you've got a whole lot of amazing writers, emerging writers, who've all collected there in a very small suburb with a lot of pubs, and um, you know, you've got Peter Carey, Murray Bale, Michael Wilding. You know, Frank, David Williamson lobs in from Melbourne and David's very successful commercially as a playwright as well as very popular. And, I mean, I, I say in the book, because I interviewed David for it, that I think there was a lot of jealousy and rivalry going on. Um, and, um, and, and so, um, you know, Frank did say something, un I thought, uncharacteristically unkind about David when he arrived in Balmain. He said he was a recycler of Australian vernacular or something like that. You know, it was a kind of uh, uh, not like Frank to say things like that. But, you know, David said that's how he felt Frank treated him for sure. And so I, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't a saint. He wasn't above feeling envious of, of people. And, I mean, Peter Carey returned in a different way that kind of... Um, I guess snarky comment when Frank was told that he'd won the Victorian Premier's, Premier's Literary Award and then 24 hours later told no, it was Peter Kerry and there'd been a typo on the press release. And, you know, in that situation, I mean, I'm not 
I don't want to defame Peter Kerry, but I guess if I'd been Peter Kerry, I'd, I would have been a bit more generous than Peter Kerry was because he basically said, you know, oh, Frank needs to, along the lines of, you know, who cares, Frank should get over it. Tough, tough bickies. Now, you've titled your, um, the, your topic tonight the politics of Frank Morehouse. So, as someone who, a woman on the left, and Frank is sort of a libertarian left, Mm. How do, well, what do you think Frank's attitude to national Australian politics was? Did he have any... I mean, there's a photograph in the book of him having lunch with Gough Whitlam. Was, was he yeah. linked in with anyone much? Yeah, I mean, he knew Gough and, I mean, he certainly was very much part of that 1970s, um, you know, push for Labor, um, its time, etc. Um, uh, but again, like, as I said, he had friends across the political spectrum. Like, um, I bumped into Peter Collins yesterday at the launch of John Brown, who was the, you know, Minister for Sport and Tourism um, under Hawkey. And, um, you know, um, he was a great champion of Frank's and Frank um, really respected Peter. So I think that... So Peter was a former New South Wales Liberal leader. Yeah. Peter, um, he was Attorney General and Minister for the Arts at one point. Yeah, in the Liberal government. So, yeah, I, I think that um, as much as he was left-leaning, he... I would just emphasise that he always reached out across the political spectrum. I mean, you know, his friendship with Owen Harries and Christopher Pearson, for instance, um, you know, would be seen by some, some people on the left as, you know, you can't, how can you talk to those people? So we're getting towards the end. Have I missed uh, anyone? So you spent 10 years on this. Um, what's <laughs> Does <next>? it show? <laughs> <laughs> What's next? Um, I'm thinking of writing a novel. I don't know, it might be, I don't know where I get this stuff, something like um, a story about divorce in the eastern suburbs or... <laughs> Watch this space. That might be a competitive field. <laughs> I want to write a book that sells. <laughs> and thank you again, Anne and Jared. It's always amazing to be here. I really, really appreciate it. So um, thanks to Catherine. Yeah, as I said, copies of the book around Frank Morehouse Alive, uh, an entertaining and informative address tonight, as Catherine's done in previous occasions here. And we wish you all the best with the book. Well done. And thanks.